This evening we begin the book of Isaiah. Again, we've chosen to follow the Hebrew book order, and so we've just ended the second significant section of the Hebrew Old Testament. We started with the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then we went through the former prophets, which is Joshua through 2 Kings, excluding the book, book of Ruth. Uh, and so now we begin the latter prophets. And outside of the fact that we will skip Daniel, basically we'll turn the pages in our Bible all the way till the end of the Old Testament, as we know it, till Malachi. The second structural uh, point I wanted to make is the organization of these prophets. They're not laid out chronologically, uh, but in order of size. In fact, that's why we have the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's not like the major and minor leagues. It's not that the minor prophets were less significant. Um, they're just not as big as the books. And so Isaiah takes its place here uh, in size as the largest of the prophetic books that, uh, they, that the Jews called the latter prophets. However, I think I can make a pretty solid case that Isaiah is the most significant as well. Um, as you may know, the book of Jeremiah gives us the language and the understanding of the new covenant as Jesus employs it in, uh, in the um, Last Supper. Um, Ezekiel gives us plenty to chew on for um, for the future of Israel uh, after the times of Jesus. Uh, we could go on and on. I could pick from other prophets and draw significant points in the New Testament. The ministry of John the Baptist is drawn directly out of the book of Malachi and its expectation. However, Isaiah we find throughout the pages of the New Testament all over the place. It's from Isaiah uh, that Jesus takes his own mission statement for his ministry in Luke chapter four when he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads and he says, these words that I've just read are fulfilled in your hearing. It's Isaiah that all four gospels evoke to give us our primary understanding of the significance of Jesus' crucifixion. It's Isaiah that Paul finds his own ministry as a light to the Gentiles on the pages here. It's Isaiah where when, G, uh, when John has the vision in Revelation and he sees the new heavens and the new earth, he takes that language for what he's seeing from the book of Isaiah. I could go on and on and on. Isaiah is... Uh, one of the most significant Old Testament books, uh, and it is the prophetic backbone of the entire Bible. Um, so I'm very excited to go through it, uh, and I'm hoping to cover a lot of ground. It's a big book, 66 chapters, and so it will take us basically the whole summer. We won't finish it until August, um, but I want to maintain um, our consistent pace and keep on moving. So. Uh, we're going to be moving along. One more note before we jump into the text. You're going to feel a pretty hardcore transition from the historical books to the prophets. And the reason for that is a little bit counterintuitive. I would suggest to you that what makes the prophets so hard is they're so historical. Not that they're completely ahistorical, not that they're removed from history, but they're so rooted in history, but away from the clear chronological context that we just encountered in the history books. And so, like the Psalms, all of Isaiah is made up of oracles that were composed on particular occasions for particular audiences to, to talk about particular things. 
But unlike the historical accounts that we just read in First and Second Kings, we don't always have the data for that. Okay? And so reading it well requires a better understanding of Israel's history because it's not so upfront. The other thing that is uh, specific to the prophets is it is full of imagery. In fact, most of the prophetic books are introduced with what the prophets saw and not what they heard. That's how high the emphasis is on, on vision. And so, as you would imagine, most of the oracles we'll encounter are visually stimulate, stimulating. They're full of imagery and metaphor and picture language and describing uh, uh, the future even in terms of what's been seen. And we can see that's the case with Isaiah as well. Notice verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, Isaiah's name here means Yahweh saves, and that's a pretty close thematic centerpiece for the book. If you want to know what the message of the book of Isaiah is, Yahweh saves will do in a pinch. It's a perfect expression, but it's also Isaiah's name. Notice here, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Notice also here that it identifies Isaiah as being primarily a prophet to the southern tribes, to Judea, as opposed to the northern tribes of Israel. As we move through the prophets, you'll see this often distinguished. And then finally, we have the list of all the kings who reigned during uh, the visions of Isaiah. So all of his ministry takes place uh, through these kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, okay? That's where his ministry spans, okay? Now, obviously there, verse one serves as an introduction to the whole book. That's why it lays out the whole of his ministry across those kings, but also the rest of chapter one uh, stands in as an introduction as well, okay? Um, not all of Isaiah is in chronological order, Oftentimes there are structural and thematic reasons for the order, um, but I want you to notice that chapter 2, verse 1, begins very similarly to chapter 1, verse 1. Verse, uh, chapter 2, 1 says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Okay. That's where the first major section of Isaiah begins, and we'll cover about half of it tonight. It goes through chapter 12. But chapter 1 stands alone. Uh, and chapter 1 here operates as a thematic introduction. It ties together the two big halves of the book, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. It has uh, extensive parallels with chapter 66, rounding off the book, beginning where it started. And it also touches on all of the major themes of Isaiah. Okay. And so much like in modern days where if an author was writing a book, the last thing he would write would be the introduction, so also Isaiah has been organized first and then this particular oracle has been put at the front to operate as an introduction. Now, we don't get in these verses here any historical reference, but based on the text itself, it's very likely that this prophecy takes place um, during the co-regency of Hezekiah and his son Manasseh. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Hezekiah was a good king. Manasseh was the worst king that Israel ever had. And there's a little bit of overlap in their reign, a co-regency. And so what you have behind the writing of this oracle in the past 
is the good highlight reign of Hezekiah, and what you have just starting to ramp up is the horrible reforms of Manasseh. I would suggest to you that makes the most sense of the context of this actual oracle. Notice how it opens in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Notice here he begins in verse 2, not addressing Israel, not addressing the kings of Jerusalem, but the heavens and the earth. Okay? The reason he's doing this is because he is calling them as witnesses. If you will, what follows, and Isaiah uses this, uh, this imagery a lot, what follows is Jerusalem on trial. Okay? And so the first witnesses he calls are the heavens and the earth. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because these are the witnesses of the covenant back in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? So if you look, for example, at Deuteronomy chapter 4, Do you ever have that feeling you have way too much to cover for an hour and a half? Just me? Uh, if you look back here at Deuteronomy chapter 4, specifically at verse 26, Moses speaking to Israel says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over Jordan to possess. You will not live on, long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. Okay, so in the very beginning here, Moses knows the end of the story, and he calls witnesses, the heavens and the earth. And so Isaiah is evoking that fact, and he goes, okay, now that it's come to pass, heavens, earth, you've seen the whole thing. Stand forward and speak. And so he says, continuing in here, uh, for the Lord has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so Israel here is compared to children who have gone rebellious and then contrasted with ox and donkeys, okay? They're children who he's reared and brought up, but they've rebelled. Now notice here when it says the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, those are the two certifiably stubborn farm animals, right? Ox are known for their stubbornness. Donkeys are known for being resistant, but even they, at the end of the day, still know where to get fed, right? Even they, at the end of the day, know where it is that they have a place to sleep, okay? But Israel, it says, does not know, and my people do not understand. Now, uh, that word to know there is also covenant language, All the way back in Exodus chapter 6, God says, I'm about to lead you out of Egypt so that you would know that I am God and I will be your God and you will be my people. All that God did (coughs) was to bring Israel into this knowing relationship, but here Israel no longer knows. They no longer know their God. Verse 4 Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Notice there, he doesn't refer to them as my people, okay, which is the usual designation for Israel, but a sinful nation, a goyim. He's using distance language, the language that's usually used of us as Gentiles, as applied to God's people here. And then when it says they have forsaken the Lord, that is also covenant language. 
okay? It's the breaking of covenant language. In fact, this is the language that Jews used in divorce, okay? It's that type of separation, okay? And so here they have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Verse 5, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Okay, I want you to notice the language there of being struck down. Do you see um, the verb of existence there, to be? Okay, when we find that before a verb, what does it do? It makes it passive. Okay, the boy hits the ball. The boy is acting on the ball. The boy uh, is hit by the ball, right? That's passive. The ball is hitting him. Here, when it says, why will you still be struck down and puts it in the passive, it's recognizing two things, okay? The striking here is the consequence of their behavior, okay? But they are allowing it to happen. It's passive. They don't wield the stick, if you will, um, but they are the reason they are being struck. It's consequence that he's talking about here. He says, why will you continue to rebel? And then he paints a picture of Israel using health terminology. He says here, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And he says, all of Israel is sick from head to toe, the whole nation is diseased. This is a picture of the needs that Israel has. Now, there's a connection point here because one of the building tensions throughout the book of Isaiah is when you've got an unfaithful people like Israel and a just God like Jehovah, how can God bring about forgiveness? We'll see this in just a second. He's going to say, if you just come to me, you would be forgiven. But what about the significance of their sin? Interestingly enough, here when it talks about um, about the sickness here, it uses the same language all the way later in Isaiah 53 when it says uh, that um, we are healed by his stripes, okay? Our sickness is taken on his shoulders, uh, speaking forward of Jesus, okay? And so here we see the problem is sickness and later we see the solution is substitutionary in, nation, in nature that Jesus is going to take the sickness of sin upon his own shoulders and pay the penalty for it. Um, so that imagery is going to come back much later in the book. Verse 7, your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land, it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now here's one of the challenges of reading the prophets. This language is in the past tense, did you notice? Your countries are already desolate, okay? Sometimes prophets are evoking what we call the prophetic perfect, meaning that they're talking about what will be as if it already happened because it's that assured. Okay. It's so likely to happen. It's going to happen so we can talk about it as it already happened. It's that assured. Okay, That may be what's going on here. In fact, when I was in Bible college and I was learning how to study the Bible, I took a class, unfortunately, called IBS, okay? an inductive Bible study. Okay? And so the goal of that class was to learn how to glean from the Bible what the Bible was talking about 
by paying closer attention to the Bible, which is a great agenda. Uh, the problem was uh, my teacher, uh, he already knew what the Bible meant, and he didn't always live up to coming to those conclusions from the evidence, or at the very least, from showing us those conclusions. So I remember this passage in particular. And at the end, he asked, when are these things happening? Are they in the future or in the past? And of course, all of us said the past, for the same reason that I just laid out. And he said, no, it's clearly the future. And somebody else brought up a question, and no, it's clearly the future. And I remember going, how do you know that? Why do you know that? You can't just say clearly, okay? When somebody says obviously, it's almost always bully language, okay? They don't have a better argument. They don't have a better case, okay? And so actually, and this is honest, that frustration I experienced in that day made me a better Bible student because I wouldn't settle for IBS. No one should settle for IBS. (laughs) I was intent on having better answers, okay? Uh, and so I've, I've committed and devoted myself to learning the evidence. Now, here's what I would suggest is a better argument, and at this point, I feel like I can disagree with my teacher and hold my ground. Okay. What I want you to notice is that it says, in, it says, the country is desolate, the cities are burned with fire, there's foreigners devouring the land, and then notice in verse 8, the daughters of Zion is left like a booth in vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So what does he say? Everything's wiped out but what? Jerusalem. Everything's been knocked down except what? Just one booth, like in a cucumber field, okay? The idea of the imagery here is uh, because you didn't live right next to your farmland in Israel, most people would live within the confines of the city and their farmlands would be without but it would add to your day, your commute, right? How many of you have a commute at the beginning of the end of the day that adds to your day, okay? And so what they would do in harvest seasons is they would build makeshift places to stay for the season. So they could just get up in the morning, do the work, and then go back to it, okay? Um, But it creates a unique picture at the end of the season because what do you have? You just have an empty field, no more fruit, no more vegetables, no more nothing, and an empty hut as well, okay? That's the picture of Jerusalem. What I would suggest to you is what Isaiah is describing here is how close disaster came when uh, when Israel, the northern tribes, were wiped out, okay? In other words, like I said here, we are in the, uh, the joint days at the very end of Hezekiah's life, right as his son, uh, right as his son Manasseh is taking over. And what happens significantly during those days? Israel, the northern tribes, is given over. In fact, Assyria comes and surrounds the city and God delivers them at the last minute, okay? That seems very clearly to be what Isaiah is describing here. He's recognizing that Jerusalem was spared, go back and read 2 Kings, not because they're righteous and the rest of Israel has been unrighteous, but because of my servant David, because of the mercy to the kingdom of David. And so the inevitable is delayed, but that doesn't make it less inevitable. Okay, and so Isaiah lays that out. In fact, notice here in verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Israel at this point is merely a remnant, okay? A remnant is the leftovers of a crafting project, right? You just have a remnant of fabric left. It's just a piece. 
and God has left a peace, okay? Uh, the remnant will be a recurring theme. We'll find it later in this chapter, in chapter 2, in chapter 7, in chapter 10. This is a recurring theme. But here, I want you to notice that without that, Israel's fate is familiar. It's similar. It's paradigmatic going back to the big consequence happening of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Now, actually, Israel during these days under the hands of the prophets gets compared to Sodom and Gomorrah quite a lot. Ezekiel 16 is the most extensive. Okay. But notice here, he says, that's what should have happened. And then notice verse 10. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He says, God left a remnant so that we wouldn't be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he addresses them as if they were Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Once again, it's not their righteousness that has spared them, but God's mercy and so danger is still nearby, and he calls them by the name of these cities. Ezekiel pushes it even further. He says, you're way worse than your sisters Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. And so, verse 11, we start, to, we start to get the problems. What's going on that makes Jerusalem so bad? Okay. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the callings of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Okay, and so at first read, it sounds like God has no interest in the way that Israel goes about worship. He says, what do I care for sacrifices and holy holidays and incense? But remember, those are divinely established practices. Okay? Isaiah is not saying we got it wrong in Leviticus. He's saying that when that is paired with Israel's behavior, it's unacceptable. He can take solemn assembly, it says of God, but he can't take it with iniquity. For them, their religion was, uh, was, was religious. It was going through the motions, but it was completely disconnected from ethics. They had the rituals of worshiping God, but like uh, Jeremiah, or it might be Ezekiel, who says, my people praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's what's going on here. Okay? They're going through the motions. In fact, it may be that they're multiplying their sacrifices because what happens under Manasseh? He starts to worship not just Jehovah, but in the temple, all the stars of the sky and Baal and his consorts. And so it may even be more than just empty ritual. It may be syncretic ritual. It may be these things. And so he says in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Okay, so what's the problem with their prayer? When they spread out their hands in prayer, in prayer, their hands are covered with the blood of oppression. Remember all the way back when Cain tries to hide his murder of Abel. Just like Adam and Eve try and hide before Cain. Right? And so God comes and he says, where is Cain your brother? Excuse me, where is Abel your brother? And what does Cain say? Are you, am I my brother's keeper? 
And how does God respond? He says, the blood of your brother is crying out from the earth. Your hands are tainted, Cain. Your earth that you till as a farmer is tainted, Cain, because it now flows with the blood of your brother. Okay. And so here he sees, uh, he sees hands that have committed violence as unacceptable to raise and worship. It's similar to what James says when he says, how can we bless God out of one side of our mouth and curse our brother out of the other side? It's inconsistent. Okay. In fact, Paul seems to pick up on this idea specifically uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, no, excuse me, chapter 2, when he's addressing men and he says, I encourage that men everywhere lift up holy hands in prayer and not in fighting. Okay. The two can't live together. They can't be uh, throwing punches and praising the Lord. Here, they can't offer prayers when their hands are coated in blood. Okay. Now, he starts by talking about what I suggested is probably idolatry, but notice that there's a second problem here. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil. Okay. That's all uh, step one. Step one is take the dirtiness, the filthiness, and wash yourself. Okay. Step two is stop getting dirty. And then step three is do the right thing instead. And so finishing there in 17, cease to do evil. 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so here, when the list is actually made of what's wrong here, we see that it has to do with how they treat the least in society. That's where the problem is. What does it mean when it says they have blood on their hands? It means that they have been oppressing the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner. Those who are unprotected in society are being taken advantage of. Okay? In fact, it can be uh, surprising here that Isaiah pairs together idolatry and religious concerns and, uh, and oppression and concerns of society and justice um, but that's actually incredibly common. In the prophets, we always see these two not both represented merely, but actually connected to one another. And that makes a lot of sense. Remember, the idea of idolatry in the Old Testament is that you take something uh, that is not God and you make it the central focus in your life. And so think of how oppression comes about uh, even in the modern world. It always comes about because something has been made central and that takes these people and makes them obstacles or vehicles to what you want. Okay, so take the nationalism of Nazi Germany. That led to the oppression of those who were not the destined race. Take the way that wealth works out in capitalist countries. If we're not careful, if wealth is too central, then those who are the least and the lowest become a means to wealth. Okay. And so the two always go hand in hand here. And notice here, he calls them not just to not mistreat the fatherless and the widow, but to bring justice to them, to plead the widow's cause. One of the reasons that's given in the Old Testament why this is to be part of Israel's ethics is because they know what it's like to be the least. God says, for I brought you out of Egypt where you were a slave, therefore treat the foreigner well. And so there's, there's a tangible understanding 
It's built upon in Deuteronomy. And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus reiterates it. Okay? He makes the same significant points, um, for example, in the Good Samaritan, of loving our neighbors and those who are different from us and those who are destitute. Uh, and then James says, this is true and clean, undefiled religion, right? We've been talking about defiled hands. James says it's to take care of the widow and to visit the orphan. Now, just a side note, in New Testament English, to visit, uh, both in Greek and in Hebrew, so in the Old Testament as well, it doesn't just mean to show up and say hi to. It means to operate on their behalf. A visitation is deliverance, okay? Now, why do we see that also in the New Testament? Where's our exodus? James uh, points to true and undefiled religion after Jesus has come, after these things have been set apart. But the truth is, the cross significantly puts us in debt to the helpless more than the exodus ever did. Because what God does for us in Jesus is so significant that it tips the scales of all inequality we may experience in life. Okay. Uh, consider how Paul puts it in, in uh, 2 Corinthians when he says uh, that we should be generous with our money because he who was rich became poor so that you being poor might become rich. In other words, to use the language of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay. What we need to receive the gospel is to recognize that we are destitute of the requirements that God has laid before us. That the debt of sin, it's not just that we're falling a little short on it this month. We have nothing to pay it with. And God pays all of it in Jesus. Even though Jesus had all the wealth of the glory and the righteousness and the holiness of God. <clears throat> and that, Paul says, affects directly our wallets how we treat the poor, not just in spirit, but the materially poor, okay? Because we know the, the greater significant spiritual debt that God has paid on our behalf, and that changes things. We could make the same case for the least of society. How often does Jesus emphasize the least of these, okay? And so this becomes a significant thing, and now God gives them two options. Jesus, excuse me, God is going to bring about cleansing in Israel, and he presents two possibilities. The first one is in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, I have to confess, I do not know a lot about good laundry practices, Okay, that is not a chore that falls to me very often, and when it does, good laundry practices is not what happens next. Okay? Um, but I do know that bloodstains are traditionally very stubborn, okay? uh, and that it is a difficult thing to get out. And so what God is presenting here in this transition from bloodstained to pure white is a striking transition. Theologically, this is also the case. How can God make the seriousness of sin clean? Okay. Again, this is the tension of the book of Isaiah. How can God offer so freely forgiveness and still be just? 
Notice verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Do you see that? Do good and eat. Do bad and be eaten. Okay. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay. And so there's two possibilities for cleansing here. One is the path of forgiveness. The other is a purge. The other is that they will be removed from the land and the land will be made clean. Okay. Now look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Again, we see that juxtaposition of faithfulness to God and the issues of justice. Okay. Whore there is a stand-in for infidelity to God. Okay. Spiritual adultery, idolatry. And he contrasts here her whoredom, not just with true good religion, but with justice. Notice here, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Okay, when we find silver in nature, it's also mixed with lesser metals, lesser minerals, okay? And so the way that we deal with that is we get it nice and hot, and because of the density and the weight of silver, the non-silver floats to the surface and we just scrape it off the top, okay? So we always need to get rid of dross in silver. That's a normal process. But here he says that all that's left is the dross, okay? You can get dross out of silver. You can't get silver out of dross, okay? In fact, the second thing he says is your best wine is mixed with water. And the thing is, that's an irreversible mistake. Watered down wine is now watered down. There's no removing that. There's no value in it now. Okay, it's just poorly flavored water. Verse 23, your princes are rebels and the companions of (coughs) thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, uh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Who are the foes and enemies there? Israel. Okay. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy and I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Here's another thing we're going to see throughout the prophets. Okay, judgment is a significant issue for the prophets, but the story never ends in judgment. There's always hope underlying what's coming. And even here we see it. God's laying out how significant the problem is. He's threatening that he's going to bring judgment on it. He says he's going to avenge himself against his foes. And he says, but by the time I'm done, righteousness will reign again. Okay. And again, we're forced to go, how exactly is that going to work? Okay. As I told you, Isaiah 1 operates as an introduction. It builds the tension of the book. We're going to see these things continue to build until they're finally answered in the servant songs in late Isaiah. In fact, notice verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. This redemption that needs to happen, this forgiveness that's going to happen, this work that God's going to do that's cleansing, it's going to be done in righteousness and in justice. In other words, God isn't going to have to sacrifice 
his righteousness or his justice to bring this about. That's the tension of the book. How can God be both just, and to use the words of Romans and spoil the question, and the justifier of the ungodly? How can God forgive sin and still justly put it to death and give about its consequence? Those are the tensions presented in the book of Isaiah. Okay? But I want you to notice here that that's the only way it can be. That a resolve where God just stops caring about the significance of sin and just lets it go. That cannot stand. The, uh, the redemption that he offers here is a redemption in his justice. It's a redemption in his righteousness, not a lowering of those things. Okay. But, verse 28, rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Again, the opportunity is repent and be forgiven, or don't and be judged. But like I said, when we get to Isaiah 53, judgment exists in both of those. Jesus stands in our place in one. The consequences are meted out. And so, John can go as far in 1 John to say that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We would expect John to say that God is faithful and merciful to forgive us. But he says he's just. Why? Because our punishment has already been paid in Jesus Christ. And so our confession makes that forgiveness freely available because there's no punishment left for us. Okay? There's no double indemnity. There's no serving the time twice for the same crime. The wrath of God on sin that Isaiah himself and many of the Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself identify Jesus drank to the dregs. There's not a drop left for us. That's why Paul says there's no condemnation. Okay? It's the justice of God. Like Romans 4 says again, God does this whole thing in sending Jesus Christ so that he might be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Okay? Isaiah is setting us up for all of these truths. Verse 29, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and shall blush for the gardens you have chosen. This is talking about pagan worship practices, okay? Groves and Asherah poles and all of these things. Remember when I suggested to you this is the reign of Manasseh? Here's more evidence that that's going on. And he's saying there will come a time where everyone will be ashamed of their idolatry, okay? At the end of time, when all humanity sees Jesus for who he is, everyone will know their false gods are finally and totally and completely false, He says, verse 30, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. They, in their worship, choose the most beautiful places for worship, but the consequence of that idolatry leads to dry trees and barren gardens. In fact, verse 31, the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Okay. So again, Chapter 1 operates as an introduction, and it lays this all out. And then chapter 2 begins the first section of Isaiah, which is from chapter 2 to chapter 12. And then right in the middle, we have this linchpin, chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision of the Lord in his throne room. Okay? But effectively, what chapters 2 through 12 are about is about pride. Okay? It's about who's going to be God. In fact, 
uh, it seems like if we were to choose a good text for this passage, chapters 2 through 5 are taking place in the days of Uzziah. Now remember, Uzziah, because of his pride, we're told in Chronicles, comes home high and mighty on all of his victories and decides, today I'm going to be the one who enters the temple and plays the priest. Okay? And because of that pride, because he didn't know his place, because he broke barriers that were put in place in front of him, uh, he's struck with leprosy. And he lives out the last of his days as a king in quarantine. Okay? In fact, chapter 6 opens with these words, In the days that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Okay? And so it fits the chronology as well. Now notice chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So notice here, chapter 2 begins with a vision, a day when Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, where the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the temple, the house of the Lord, is the highest mountain. Okay? Now again here, this is imagery, right? The idea here is not uh, that Jerusalem is going to end up at a higher elevation than the tip of Everest, okay? but it's height in terms of centerpiece, focal point, gravitas, glory. It's going to be the center of the world, okay? But notice it says here that it will be the highest of the mountains that shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. When it talks here about Jerusalem being the highest mountain, that's speaking of exclusivity. No other place, no other system of worship, no other temple, no other center for, for another God will be standing comparatively Zion will be the highest, but it says all the nations will flow into it. That's inclusive, okay? One door, the door to Mount Zion, open to all comers, all the nations, okay? This is another balance we see throughout Scripture. Christianity is both more exclusive and more inclusive than all other religions. It's more exclusive in the fact that none of us are good enough for God. Christianity alone says that we are a lost cause that cannot fix the problem that haunts us, that we cannot deal with sin, death, and the devil on our own. But it's also the most inclusive because in condemning all under sin, the salvation that's offered in Jesus is made available equally and fully and completely to all. No one is too bad for what Christianity offers. And so we see that same exclusivity and inclusivity open to all comers. Jesus is the only way the only truth and the only life. Okay. Now, it says many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. So notice here, we see pilgrims from all the nations saying, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and learn of God. Okay. Uh, verse uh, 3 continues, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide the disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pr pruning hooks. What does that speak of? It speaks of no need for the implements of war anymore. Okay. Uh, I love how um, 
how the King James says this. So it says, Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The King James says they will no longer study war. It won't be in the textbooks anymore. There won't be any more need for the skills of war. Lao Tzu's art of war, it's going to go out of print for the first time in history. Okay? It will no longer be necessary. Because God's rule is recognized, and because the nations come and instruct, are instructed of God, there will be peace. Okay. So, Isaiah paints this vision. It's the inevitable final climax of the story that God is telling. It's the same place where the book of Revelation ends. A time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and all the nations will recognize the king of Jerusalem, Jesus himself. But notice verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He says, if this is where everything is headed and someday all the nations who do not know God will come for his light and walk in his ways, what should we do now? We should do it now. But notice the reversal in verse 6. For you, God, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. In other words, what's it saying? One day, all of the nations are going to come to Israel to learn, but you've learned the ways of all the nations. Even though everybody is going to recognize the truth in the light of your God, you've settled for their lies and falsehoods now. It's moving in the wrong direction. Israel was to be the great influencer of the ancient world, a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests, right? But instead, they've turned to the nations and said, how do you do things? What can we learn from you? They've drawn from outside sources. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Notice there, there's a connection made between idolatrous worship and pride. Okay? Because idolatry involves us selecting our own gods, and we always select them because they're of greatest service to us. We worship wealth because we say, wealth will give me what I want. Okay. It's always tied to pride. It makes us the center of the story. It makes us the most significant part, and it finds a way for us to manipulate the world as it is to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. Okay. And so, <clears throat> what he foresees here is a humbling Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Okay, this is another repeated refrain of the Bible, that God will humble the proud, and he will exalt himself, and in doing so, he will exalt the lowly. Okay, and so here it says, basically, when God shows up, that will be humbling enough, okay? When they recognize the real God in all his reality, their idols will pale in comparison, okay? It's, it's as if we're worshiping the flame of a candle, and then we encounter the full-blown light of day, right? It's not impressive anymore. The foolishness of it is encounters. And so verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. 
Here is our first time encountering in the prophets the idea of the day of the Lord. Okay. This significant time, the culmination of the calendar. Okay. A time that we don't know. A time that Jesus on earth said even he didn't know, but only the Father himself. But it is a day nonetheless. Martin Luther said, there's only two days on my calendar, today and that day. And those were the ones that shaped every decision that he made. Okay? And so, so Isaiah prophesies and says, there's a day that's coming where the proud will be put down, verse 13, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains and the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Even his references here, the oaks of Beshan, and the cedars of Lebanon, and the ships of Tarshish, these are all references to the good and glorious things that are happening during the days of Uzziah. Okay? as he's starting to have some economic success again, and he's starting to partner to build and drawing sources like the days of Solomon into these things. And there's just a reminder, there's nothing wrong with beautiful buildings. There's nothing wrong with really tall trees. There's nothing wrong with the redwoods in California. But we need to keep things in perspective. Okay? We need to remember that anything we can build, anything that we observe is, <coughs> is temporary, is finite, and so, uh, verse 18, all idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves and rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. The imagery there of hiding out in caves and God terrifying the earth, that's the picture of an earthquake, okay? And that would be very significant to Israel because Amos tells us in Amos 1.1, Zechariah mentions it as well, that during this time, Israel experiences an earthquake. Okay? So they have hands-on experience of this disaster, and Isaiah, like any good speaker, utilizes it to make his point. He says, this is like that. What you know and experience is a taste of what this is. Verse 20, in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats. Okay, they'll abandon them in the caves where they hide, basically. To enter the caverns of the rock and the clefts of the cliff from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now, that is worth meditating on, okay? Many of us experience what the Bible calls the fear of man, which means we make decisions specifically thinking, how will this person react to it? What will they think if I, right? And here, Isaiah says that's a foolish move because he says uh, there's just, just air moving in and out that keeps them alive. As soon as they stop breathing, they're nothing. They're of no account, I've told this story before, but I can't resist before we move on to chapter 3. One of my preaching heroes, one of the all-stars of preaching for me, was a man named Hugh Latimer. He was a court preacher for the King of England, and eventually that role and the way he handled it cost him his life. He was martyred for his boldness in preaching. But there was an occasion where he preached a particular text, and he preached so boldly that the king sent a messenger, and he said, Hugh, the message you preached on Sunday deeply offended the king. He wants you to come back and keep in mind who you're talking to. 
And so Hugh came back the next Sunday, and before he began his message, he addressed the whole court, but he did it in the third person. He said, be careful today, Hugh Latimer, because you stand before the king who determines whether you live or die. You say one wrong word, and he can demand your execution. And he said, but be more careful, careful, Hugh Latimer, because you also stand before the one who determines your afterlife and whether you live in heaven or die in hell. And then he preached the same sermon from last week. Hugh Latimer understood what Isaiah is pushing here. All the threats of those kings are breath and vapor. They don't last. They're not significant. Okay. Continuing in chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. Side note, do you remember us reading the fulfillment of this at the end of 2 Kings? Okay. When Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes the best that Israel has in Jerusalem, all of the great merchants, all of the elders, all of the priests, all of the prophets, all of the rulers, and he takes them all out and he leaves only the dregs of society. That's what Isaiah is warning here is going to happen. He's foreseeing that this is going to happen. He says in verse 4, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. In other words, this is going to uproot the status quo so significantly that the ones left in charge are not qualified for it, right? And because of that, it rains out chaos, okay? It's post-apocalyptic. Verse 6, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, ah, you have a cloak. You shall be our leader in this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. Okay, it's supposed to sound silly. You really should laugh. The idea here is what qualifies leadership is a guy has an, has an, has an outdoor coat. And go, that is evidence of success. And he says, you can rule over this whole heap of ruins. It's all yours. Okay. That's another thing about the prophets. They're pretty funny. But it's almost always sarcasm. Okay. And so here he says, that's what's coming. In verse 7, in that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer in my house. There is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of your people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their face bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. So he says here, what's going on is not hidden it's not whispered about. It's not happening in back rooms. It's paraded. It's presented. It's glorified. Okay? And then he turns and he speaks to the remnant. Verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Again, notice, notice that the, the fairness of the measurement there. What God says is going to happen is directly related to what Israel has done. In fact, we'll see some, uh, some examples of that um, in the passage to come. Verse 12, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your path. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. 
The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. <coughs> Excuse me. So his criticism here is the ones who are supposed to be the protectors have taken advantage. One of the images that will be used later in the book of Zechariah is the image of a shepherd. Okay. A good shepherd nourishes and cares for and protects the sheep. A bad shepherd sees them as dinner, takes advantage of them, squanders uh, those resources, crushes the poor. And so what he's recognizing here is that they've done the exact opposite of what they were meant to do. For, for God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, authority is about responsibility and not about privilege. Authority is about service to those who need service, protection of those who need protection, and not self-service and self-protection and self-glory. Okay. Verse 16, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Okay. And so we move here from those who are sitting on the throne to the wealthy women of Israel, okay? And they're decked out from head to toe. The idea of mincing, uh, mincing along as they go is that there's a bounce in their step. They've got swagger, okay? Tinkling with their feet means they're wearing extensive heavy anklets that make noise as they walk, okay? Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts, which is a way of saying they will go naked. Okay? And once again, notice there's, there's a juxtaposition there. Their crime is a vanity of a glorying in themselves, of promoting this beauty. And remember, all of the wealth is based on their husband's exploitation of the poor. Every bracelet they wear was stolen from the dinner table right, of the poor people. That's the idea here, and he says in response to that, they're going to be made ugly. They're going to experience specifically here the consequence of war, becoming prisoners of war, trading their fancy clothes for a prisoner's garment, okay? And their health and wealth in their houses for um, you know, the poverty that comes uh, with being the prisoners of war. Verse 18, he continues, In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, uh, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, and the nose rings. What is he doing here by listing everything so thoroughly? He's showing us how over the top it is. Okay? It's, it's not one little ornamentation of beauty. It's an entire luxurious way of life. It's exhaustive just listing all of the things that mark fashion in these days in Israel. Verse 22 continues, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, Louis Vuitton, no doubt, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Remember again, we're talking about pride. Vanity, this expression of beauty, is a manifestation of pride. It doesn't just say, look at me. It says, look at how great I am. Look at how wealthy I am. There was an article out a few weeks ago, fascinating, talking about how, um, how live streaming 
of competitive video games, esports, has started to manifest fashion. Okay, now if you don't get why that's funny, you've forgotten what video games are and who play them. Okay, uh, traditionally, right, it's the nerds who don't care about their appearance and barely shower who are good at video games. But now that it's being broadcast on, on services like Twitch, you see them in the same $1,000 shoes that you see basketball players in, okay? Do you think these people really have an interest in fashion? No, they've become the center of attention. They have the glory. They're flaunting their wealth and their position, okay? Just like Kanye. That's the same idea, okay? This is the human heart. This is the way that it's cultivated, and that's what's going on in Israel says, verse 26, her gate shall lament and mourn, empty shall she sit on the ground. Okay. Um, and so <laughs> this is what's coming, and then notice the tail end of here in chapter 4, verse 1. Seven women shall take hold of one man that day, saying, we'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, but let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Okay. They won't need husbands anymore uh, for provision. They'll, they'll take care of all that. will be no cost to your household. Just let us be called by your name. Okay, desperate to get rid of shame. Okay. And then notice verse 2 here. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be pride, shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Do you see that idea of pride again? Once again, he's jumped the time scale. Something that we see in the prophets, and we'll deal with this a lot next week or the week after, uh, we call prophetic telescoping. Okay? I want you to imagine history like a telescope, okay, fully extended. But you can also take a segment of it and pop it back and put this really close to this, even though there's all this distance between it, right? That's what I mean when I say prophetic telescoping, that the prophets move between points in history of time without saying, and a thousand years later, okay? And so here he looks way beyond to the restoration of Israel, and there is beauty there, and there is fruitfulness, and there is wealth, but who will get the glory? It says, that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. What does that word survivors imply in the timeline? Post-judgment, right? So in a much longer day, God is going to work through the branch. And some have suggested the idea here of the branch of the Lord is Israel. They're the ones who are supposed to be bearing fruit. When we get to chapter 5, he's going to say, you're my vineyard, and you've brought about bad fruit. That makes sense. However, this idea of the branch becomes paradigmatic for the prophets. And eventually, they're not talking about Israel as a whole, but one person, the branch. Okay? In fact, Zechariah starts to solve the puzzle for us. Listen to what he says here in chapter 3. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. He's near the end, right before Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Notice it's clearly a person there. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its description, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove iniquity of this land in a single day. So what is the branch going to do? In a single day? Deal with the sin of Israel. In fact, notice what he says later in chapter 13. Remember that reference to a single day? 
Listen to what he says, 13 verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The branch will come and clean, and because of his cleaning, he will bear fruit, and that fruit will be good, and the land will be restored. Okay, and so here, the idea of the branch that's coming is pointing forward to Jesus. Okay, it's his reality that is being pointed to here. And in that day, the glory is going to be in the right place. The worship is going to be directed in the right direction. The pride will be laid low, and God himself will be exalted because the branch will be the very Son of God. Verse 3, he who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem in its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. This is the first time we get a reference to this idea of a book of life, a place where those who will live are written. Okay? That's what John evokes when he talks about the book of life at the end of Revelation. Verse 5, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and a shining of flame of fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat for a refuge and a shelter from the storm of rain. Does that imagery sound familiar? Right, it's going back to the wilderness when God led them with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke and that was both their light by night and their protection from the sun by day and he says that time is going to come again where God is that present in the midst of his people okay let's finish out here with chapter five <clears throat> notice how chapter five verse one opens let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard okay. and so what we have here recorded for us is a song and he says here that he's singing for his beloved and that the song is about the vineyard that belongs to the beloved. Now, this is another tactic that we find throughout the prophets. He's talking about Israel and he's using this to criticize them, but he draws them in with an open picture, with a song, with a work of art, right? He says, let me sing you a song. And the song is about the beloved who has a vineyard. And remember... The Jews know a little bit about vine dressing. It's a significant part of Jewish life. As they hear this story, they're thinking in the context of things they see every day, of friends they know who have their own vineyards. Okay? They do not know at first, like Nathan, with his story that he tells David, that they are the man. He paints the picture first. He draws them in. He even stokes their ire a little bit, and then he points the finger. And so he says here, <clears throat> let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Okay, it's planted in the right place. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Okay, he does what he needs to with the soil. He chooses the right plants to put in there. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Okay, the watchtower is about protection. The wine vat is about expectation, right? a place to process the grapes when they grow. And he looked to it for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, okay? Now, one of the things you have to understand about the way grapes grow is that uh, you don't expect a veritable crop, one that you can actually make use of, until the third season, 
okay? You just let it grow the trashy grapes it grows for the two th first two years, but in the third year is when you start to get healthy grapes. And so <coughs> what I'm suggesting here is there's an understood element of patience here. He doesn't plant it and come out the next morning and go, nothing, and then burn the place to the ground, okay? He's put all the time, and now he puts in all the patience but instead it yields wild grapes or sour grapes or rotten grapes is the idea here. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard than I've done in it? He says, didn't the vine dresser do rightly? Is it because of any mistake that he's made? Okay, remember, lift up the surface here. God is saying, where did I go wrong? I gave you every advantage. I've given you every comfort. I've been patient with you. And yet, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yet yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I'll take away its protection. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they no, rain no rain upon it. Okay, that's the first time where we get a real clear signal of whose vineyard it is, right? That's something that no Jewish vine dresser has ever done successfully. Clouds, no more rain. Okay. But clearly here, the audience is going, hey, wait a minute. Are you talking about us? Are you talking about God? Are we the vineyard here? Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay, I have to be honest. I have very little place for things written in Old English. Okay, it's hard for me to read poems uh, when the language is in older spellings, and I have a hard time finding any glory in that. I really don't care to read the Canterbury Tales in the, in the spelling it was written in, period. Okay. However, we also miss out on some of the sense and the beauty of those things, even though it takes longer to understand them. And that's what happens here that's missed in the English, okay? When he says he looked for justice, that word is mispat, okay? But behold, bloodshed, that's mispah. He looked for mispat, he only found mispah. And then he looked for righteousness, that's sadaka. But behold, an outcry, that's a sakka, okay? He looked for sadaka, but only found sakka. It's a play on words. Okay? There's a cadence to this that we lose in the English that, that uh, is a service uh, by, by um, both catching attention, that's what a play on words does, and being memorable. Okay? When Isaiah's audience walks home from the song, what do they remember? Instead of justice, bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, a crying out for justice. Now, what we get, what follows is these woes, and I would suggest to you, these are the wild grapes, okay? He says, I planted a vineyard, it's led to wild grapes, here we find out what they are. This is where uh, Isaiah pulls back the veil and addresses directly his audience, okay? Remember here, a woe involves both a lament and anger, okay? And so here, verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. He says, woe to the rich who make bigger and bigger mansions and are the only ones who live there and take up more and more land and squeeze the poor, you know, into the projects. Okay. 
He says, eventually you'll be made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. He says, you've invested in your homes, I will make you homeless. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. In other words, he says, I'm going to spoil the economy. I'm going to make it so that the things that made you wealthy no longer bring about wealth. I'm going to crash the market. Okay. Verse 11, side note, just to pause, this is the problem with idolatry. It takes our security and it makes it built on sand. Okay, and so if your security and your safety is the market, what happened in 2008? So much despair, so much lost, and that was all their hope, and so, so many took their lives. Okay, verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. He says, woe to those who live for the bottle, okay? The Bible always condemns drunkenness, but I want you to recognize that here that drunkenness is coupled with wealth. This is a privileged lifestyle to not have to go to work every day and to be just focused on your drinking, okay? I did a lot of reading of G.K. Chesterton the last few years. I read through everything he's ever written that's available. Uh, it took me a couple of years, um, but he talks about prohibition a lot because that's an American issue that's contemporary to his life. And one of the things he points out that I didn't know about prohibition was the way that it inversely affected the poor because they shut down all of the, all of the taverns and they closed down all of these things. But of course, the wealthy houses were full of their, you know, their wine cellars and they, were kept, they kept their expensive claret, even though most of them were the ones who were pushing prohibition. And so there was an injustice in it that I didn't realize that was there. Um, notice verse 12, they have the lyre and the harp, tambourines and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So they're throwing huge parties. Everybody's there, but they have no place for the glory of God. Therefore, verse 13, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, that's the place of the dead, opens its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself in holy holy in righteousness. There's an occasion where Moses is interceding for rebellious Israel, and he says, God, for your name's sake, this is in Numbers 13 or 14, for your name's sake, spare the people. And he says, for my name's sake, I have to bring consequence. For my name's sake, I have to bring justice. Okay, and so the way God shows his glory, the way he's exalted here is in judgment. Verse 17, <clears throat> then shall lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw in sin with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Okay, and so the idea here is that they're living out their life in secret, plotting and scheming, and then publicly saying, where is the God you talk about? If he has anything to say, let him say it, okay? 
And so it's the juxtaposition here between, between the hiddenness of their action, which proves the reality of God in their life, and their public decrying of God not being present. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The idea here is moving away from God's commands and discerning our own right and wrong, making our own morality. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. These are those who say, I know what's best for my life. I know what's best for humanity. I am the one who knows. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Okay, so he lays out all these woes and now we get to the consequence again. Therefore, as the tongues of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will go up like the dust. For they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised his word, the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the street. Remember when I mentioned the prophetic perfect earlier? This is clearly that. He's looking down the pipe and he says, this is inevitable. It is future, but we might as well talk about it as, as it's already happened. This is where things are headed. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Okay. And so here we, we hear what's going to happen and now he's going to explain how he's going to do it. We've heard about the consequence. Now we're going to see the methodology. Okay. And it says in verse 26, he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. Notice here this talks, talks of a people <coughs> far away, not a near enemy of Israel. We're not talking Philistines or Canaanites or Egypt, but a people far away. Um, but also I want you to notice here that the reason they come, these foreigners from this long distance, is because God calls them. He, he says, come here, I've got a job for you to do. God says he's going to employ these foreign enemies. Here, I need you to see that God sees himself as being sovereign over the disaster that will be the destruction that Babylon brings. Okay. Now, side note, God is going to judge Babylon for their cruelty. Being a tool of the Lord doesn't excuse you to be a tool. Okay. Uh, they will get their own consequences, but what we need to see here is that God is sovereign. Okay? It, it is not Babylon that brings destruction on Jerusalem. It is God. Peter and John make a similar claim in Acts chapter 4. They say that you, Jerusalem, have sinfully crucified your own Messiah according to the sovereign, foreordained plan of God. Both are true. Fully responsible for their actions, inescapably God's plan. Okay. That's why when we get to Romans 13.1, it says that we should submit to government. Because right or wrong, good or bad, whether God is bringing judgment on them or using them very directly to bring about justice, whatever the season is, God is still on the throne. And eventually, Revelation 11 says, all the kingdoms of the earth will be handed to Christ. 
God is sovereign. He's at work. That is not a reason for passivity. I want you to remember that those same disciples who in, uh, in Romans 4 say suffering is God's foreordained plan also pray just a little bit later that God would give them boldness so that that coming and impending and possible suffering wouldn't hinder them from doing what God has called them to. Okay. In fact, that's what stirs them up is they say all of the Lord's Pilate and Herod, they condemned your Messiah to death. And yet you laugh at them in derision, Psalm 2. He says, let us remember that God who sits on the throne and laughs at the plans of men. Let us operate in that way. Okay? So generally it should be an encouraging thing, but here we need to recognize that this is the work of God. He's the one who is doing this. Notice that this army is significant. Verse 27, none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken, in perfect order, with perfect equipment and perfect strength. Their arrows are sharp, their bows are bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind, both being images of speed. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl, and they seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by the clouds. Again, we see the consequences God presents as being justice. Remember in verse 20, these are those who declare light darkness and darkness light. And he says, so be it, I'm going to bring darkness on your light. Okay. And so, again, here, what we see in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 2 through 5 is, a, is an elevation of Jerusalem in their own regard, in their own minds. A pride that runs into every facet of society. And God reminds them that he's going to put it right. And juxtaposed with that is the reality of their sin. Because pride and sin go together. Um, that's why uh, we sometimes talk about pride as being a root sin, okay, that leads to the fruits of all other sorts of behavior in our life. Um, but also he talks about sin and he presents the whole time two possible futures, both of them a cleansing. Either God is going to cleanse them in forgiveness or he's going to purge them from the land in judgment. Okay. These are the major things that are going to lay out. And as we'll see, Intermixed in this is this promise of the one who's going to make this first way possible, the branch. Or next, next week we'll encounter him as Emmanuel, God with us. Okay? Uh, he's woven through all of Isaiah, always present, always presented. And next week we'll start as right in this day as Uzziah dies and the question of what happens now opens up for Israel again. Isaiah is going to have a vision. And it's going to be a vision of God in all of his glory. Okay, and we're going to see Isaiah himself, who's playing for the right team, remember, who is one of the remnant, who is one of the righteous, totally crushed by the weight of his own inadequacy and sin as he's exposed to the full frontal holiness of God. But that's next week. Let's pray. Father, I love, I love this book. I understand why so many have called it the New Testament of the Old Testament. I pray, Lord, that we would feel the full weight of the familiarity of these passages, Lord, that they just don't sound that distant. They just don't sound that ancient. They're a little close for comfort. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would watch out for the vanity of the things we invest in and put our pride in and glory in, that we would watch out for the ways that we excuse injustice and oppression, conspiracy and crime, the way we justify our own sin because we deserve more than them. And I pray as well, Lord, that we wouldn't make this mistake of having the very truth of the very God, the one that all nations long for, whether they know it or not, the one that all nations will flock to. Let us not forsake that. Looking for bread where there's famine. Looking to the nations for advice when we already have everything we need for life and godliness. Let us be a source of life and not seek out and and suckle the teat of death. Help us with that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.